0: Hello, my name's Dr. Annaline Weston, dental legal consultant at Dental Protection based in the Brisbane office. For this episode of Risk Bites, I wanted to share a podcast with you recorded by my colleague at Medical Protection Society, Dr. Pallavi Bradshaw. I do hope you find this podcast helpful, as I have. I'm Dr. Pallavi Bradshaw, medical legal lead, risk prevention at NPS. I'm joined today by Dr. David O'Regan, who is a consultant in psychiatry and sleep medicine at the Sleep Disorder Centre at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital. David currently undertakes specialist clinics for sleep disorders with a subspecialism in insomnia and where there are comorbid psychiatric disorders. So David clearly has a wealth of experience um, related to sleep and I know that a lot of our members um, currently Uh, working during COVID, uh, maybe facing um, some issues. So, David, thank you for coming to speak to us today. I just wanted to start by asking, are our members more vulnerable to insomnia during this time?
1: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Pallavi, for inviting me. And yes, I I think we all are. But firstly, by way of background, I think it's important to say that insomnia is the most common sleep disorder. So it affects about 10% of adults but in healthcare workers, we know the baseline rates are much higher, with most studies showing a prevalence of around 35%. Any of us can develop an insomnia at any times in our lives, and right now, anxieties regarding COVID, its effect on our health, families, finances, and lives in general, are a significant triggering factor. This stress and anxiety can drive a hyper aroused and racing mind, making it very difficult to initiate or maintain sleep at night. Additionally, for members working from home or who are not able to work at the moment, loss of daytime structure and routine will play an important role in driving sleep difficulties. Any associated daytime dysfunction from poor sleep, so feeling tired or low in mood and energy, for example, coupled with poor nighttime sleep can increase the drive to nap, and this in turn will make sleeping at night significantly more difficult. When we take all of this together, It really creates the perfect storm for insomnia to flourish.
0: So it's interesting, David, that you've picked up on absolutely that there are varying reasons at the moment for why our members may not be able to sleep, whether they are working on the front line or perhaps they're unable to work because their practices are shut. So what can our members do to improve their sleep?
1: Well, there are a number of small steps that we can all make to safeguard and improve our sleep. And by doing so, we will improve our daytime function and mood and ability to cope in this very challenging time. So firstly, I'd say if a member is working from home, I would recommend using any room bar their bedroom to work. And this advice is based on a technique called stimulus control, which is derived from classical conditioning. I'm sure you remember the story of Pavlov and his dogs, Pallavi. Yes. (laughs) Well, us humans are just as prone to being conditioned as his dogs were. So when a good sleeper sees their bed, the bed actually makes them sleepy. However, when somebody with poor sleep sees their bed, the mind remembers that this is a place where they don't sleep, where they worry, where they feel frustrated and anxious. People with an established insomnia will say that they can sleep on the sofa, in a hotel, or even in hospital. But when they cross the threshold of their own bedroom, it's like a light is being switched on and they become wide awake. So to prevent this from happening, The bed and bedroom should just be used for sleep, sex and getting dressed only. Everything else, so including reading and using mobile phones, should happen outside of the bedroom.
0: Goodness, that's so interesting. I'm thinking of members who might not have access, however, to another room.
1: That's a great point. And this technique can be easily adapted for those members. So I'd recommend for them trying to make the room they're in look very different from the day and night. So for example, placing a different cover over the bed during the day and maybe putting out a plant or putting up a picture, And then at night time, removing the day cover and plant and replacing the bedspread and pillows. And over time, the mind will learn when the room is in day and in night mode.
0: So that was stimulus control, as as you referenced. Are there any other techniques that you could advise?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Um, With poor nighttime sleep, people often find it easier to sleep in the morning. And when you couple this with working from home or maybe not working at all at the moment, usual rising times can drift later and later in the morning. Now, unfortunately, this will adversely affect our internal or our homeostatic drive to sleep. And to help explain this physiological process, we use the concept of sleep fuel. So every hour that I'm awake, I am collecting sleep fuel and when I have enough sleep fuel collected for me, I can fall asleep. Each of us have our own unique sleep fuel requirements. So some people might need to be awake for 16 hours before their sleep tank becomes full, whilst others it could be 17 or 19 hours and so on. Now if I rise at a different and later time each day, then I will be delayed and inconsistent in collecting my sleep fuel. This means I'll be awake later in the evening as I wait for that sleep fuel tank to fill. So to avoid this, it's important that we wake and rise at the same time each morning, seven days a week, no matter how badly we've slept. And this is a technique called anchoring the day, and it allows us to collect that sleep fuel in a consistent manner. It's important when we're doing this technique to avoid napping. So if sleep fuel is that force which drives our sleep, then every nap is like stealing some of that sleep fuel. There is a caveat to this, though, and that is if we're at risk of putting ourselves or others in danger, then we should nap. But outside of those scenarios, napping is best avoided.
0: So, David, though, it sometimes is so hard not to nap. I I am quite fond of a siesta myself. And if I set my rising time at seven o'clock in the morning, would this mean I had to get up at seven at the weekend too?
1: Yeah, so these are great questions. Uh, The first one about napping. To avoid napping... It's best if we try chewing gum or moving or, if possible, try to get some fresh air. And as our nighttime sleep improves, then our drive to nap will disappear. And we want to remember our goal of saving that precious sleep fuel for the night so that we sleep well then. Many people will feel the desire to nap at similar times in the day. So, for example, if you know 9 p.m. is your risky nap time, then try not to be in your usual spot at 9 p.m. Offered then to empty the dishwasher or walk around the sofa a few times. And the desire to nap is temporary. By the time you've done these activities, it will have passed. Your second question about maintaining that constant rising time or anchor time at weekends, that can be difficult, especially when it seems like the whole world is getting a lie-in. And here too, it's important that I emphasize that the rules for people with insomnia are very different to good sleepers. So it really adds injury to insult that other people in your home can do what they want. They can read in bed, they can lie in, they can drink coffee late, and despite breaking all of these sleep rules, they can still sleep. But when you have insomnia, you have to be a little bit more careful. It's a bit like being on a diet. Others can have dessert, but if you're on a diet, declining that chocolate cake, although hard to do at the time, it's ultimately in keeping with your long-term goal of weight loss. So if we want to make that anchor time easier at the weekend, I'd advise developing a nest. And a nest is really a comfortable place that can be anywhere outside the bedroom. And in the nest, you might have a blanket and a collection of activities, so books, music, podcasts, TV, whatever that you enjoy. So when you are up at 7am at the weekends, you can go to the nest Do an activity that brings you pleasure, like watching that TV series that no one else in the house likes. And that way that you're still collecting your sleep fuel in a consistent manner. And of course, the only thing we ban from the nest is actual sleep.
0: Fascinating. So, so far, you've told us about stimulus control and anchoring the day, but you haven't mentioned something called sleep hygiene.
1: Oh, That's right. And and most members will have heard about sleep hygiene. And it's interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, there doesn't seem to be a clear consensus about what is and isn't included in sleep hygiene. And most of the tenants aren't evidence based at all. And in fact, we actually use sleep hygiene as the placebo in our insomnia trials. But that said, there are a number of sleep hygiene factors that are worth keeping in mind. And I'm going to start with food and drink, and in particular, alcohol. Now, alcohol is a bit of a double edged sword. It's great at getting us off to sleep, but it tends to lead to a very broken night of light and actually quite shortened sleep. So if you do consume alcohol, it's best to do it earlier in the evening and definitely not in the two hours before bed. Staying with food and drink, caffeinated beverages tend to last a long time in the body and they are alerting because they block our accumulation of sleep fuel. So if you've been careful and gone to the trouble of anchoring the day and getting up at, you said earlier, Pallavi, 7 a.m. at weekends, then it's a shame to spoil that by consuming caffeine. So it's therefore worth trying to avoid caffeine after 2 p.m., even for a period of two weeks as a trial to see if this helps to improve your sleep. Otherwise in sleep hygiene, most sleep physicians would advise that bedrooms are kept cool, dark, and quiet. And if possible, try to engage in some form of daytime exercise, but not in the three hours before bed because the endorphins from exercise are quite alerting. And by exercise, I mean anything that gets us out of breath. And it's been shown in several studies to increase the amount of deep sleep that we get over time. And it's a great way of discharging anxiety as well.
0: As we appreciate, a lot of people will be feeling quite anxious or worried. And is there anything we can do for a racing mind at night?
1: Oh, for sure. As a start, I think it's worthwhile us remembering that all of our anxiety naturally increases as nighttime approaches. So in evolution, nighttime was the most dangerous time for humans. It's a time when we couldn't protect ourselves as well from predators or enemies. So even people who don't suffer anxiety commonly, they will recall times when they were worried over something at night and when they woke in the morning, realized that worry was quite trivial. So the first technique we can use to try and reduce a racing mind is to introduce the notion of a buffer zone. And a buffer zone is a period of time of at least 90 minutes before bed, when we try and move our mind and body into a state of relaxation, ready for sleep. It's good to start the buffer zone with the bath because this forces relaxation, helps ease our muscles, which I'll come back to later, and it promotes the secretion of melatonin, the sleeping hormone. After the bath, it's then a good idea to try and scan our minds and to try and empty them by keeping a worry diary. And we can do this quite simply by taking a piece of paper every evening and drawing out three boxes. In the first box, we can write down what might be bothering us at the moment or what didn't go so well today. And by writing down that worry or what didn't go so well, give our minds permission to let it go. It's important here that we actually go to the trouble of writing down the worry rather than saying it out loud or just typing it. And we know from imaging studies that the act of engaging the muscles involved in writing helped to reduce neuronal activity in the worry centers in the brain. Then in the third box, we want to make an action on that worry. So if you like, this third box is our to-do list. And it's important that we're realistic when we're doing our worry diary. So for example, if I was worried about my finances at the moment and I write that down, it would be futile then in my to-do list to write down, sort out finances. A more achievable goal might be to write down, find out how much of my overdraft that I'm using. And then we repeat that process by writing in the second box, what is happy on my mind or what went well today. And people often get stuck here and think, well, I didn't win the lottery today and what is there to be positive about in this time of COVID? But we want to try and recall simple joys and pleasures. So for example, if I received a funny WhatsApp video clip from a friend, then I might write that down in my second box. I want to action on the good stuff too. So in my third box or my to-do list, I might write down, I'll forward this video clip to another friend who I know will enjoy it. Now, this worry diary, it's not a panacea for all our problems. It's intended to help us do a quick scan of our mind, and it takes one or two minutes to do. And when I do it now in the buffer zone, it means I'm not carrying it into bed when I'm trying to sleep. And as we go through the buffer zone, we can keep our diary beside us. And if other thoughts enter our mind, then we can write those down too. So in this buffer zone, after we've had a bath and we've gone through the worry diary, it's then time to go on a holiday. And by that, I mean it's time to engage in whatever activity we get pleasure from. So television, music, puzzles, knitting, whatever it might be. Throughout the buffer zone, I'd recommend not using our mobile devices to read messages, check social media, emails, or to do final COVID-19 updates. This is our reward for getting through the day. It's a time for pure pleasure. So I'd really advise putting those devices on aeroplane mode. Then in the buffer zone, when we feel sleepy, tired, so when our eyes feel heavy and our head begins to nod, that's the time then to transition to the bedroom.
0: These are all really great tips, David. But what if I wake up worried in the middle of the night?
1: You're absolutely right. No matter how well we keep a buffer zone, there will be those times when a worry wakes us or stops us from entering sleep. And I think it's a good time now to emphasize that absolutely nobody sleeps perfectly. And it's a common fantasy when we're not sleeping well to think the rest of the world is sleeping soundly, but that's not the case. And losing a night's sleep because of a pertinent worry is a really universal human experience. But that said, there are additional techniques we can try when worries attack us in the night. The first is called progressive muscle relaxation, or PMR for short. And I'm starting with this because it's a body relaxation technique, and it's easier to relax the body than the mind. Once my body is relaxed, then my mind will naturally follow. So if I enter bed with quite tense muscles, and it's surprising how tense they can be without me being consciously aware of it, the tense muscles will send a signal to my mind that all is not safe. And in turn, that will drive hyper arousal and sleeplessness. PMR was one of the first techniques shown to help insomnia in the 1930s, and it involves tensing and relaxing various muscle groups, a little bit like giving yourself a massage. There are lots of resources for PMR available, and you can look on SoundCloud for PMR for sleep, for example. Once you've found a technique within PMR that you like, then it can be used to help you get off to sleep when you enter bed, or to help you get back into sleep if you wake in the night. And like all of these techniques, it's one that gets better with practice. The second technique for a racing mind is thought stopping. And we can achieve this by first trying to open our eyes. So if we're lying in a darkened room at night with our eyes closed, the loudest noise in that room will be our mind. When we open our eyes, it exposes them to visual stimuli even if the room is dark, and this helps to quieten down the mind. The second technique is to repeat a word which has no imagery, emotion or colour attached, and that is the word the. So if your mind is racing, try to repeat the word the every time you exhale. You don't have to say it out loud if you have a bed partner, just try to lip sync it or even think it. And it's been shown that it's impossible to create another verbal thought whilst we are doing this. You might find yourself repeating the word the for 20 minutes or so the first few times you use it and you might feel a little bit foolish, but with practice, it's a really powerful technique at quietening down the mind. And finally, if these techniques didn't work, then I'd encourage the person to get out of bed, go to their nest and do something that they find enjoyable. Lying awake and frustrated in bed is just not conducive to attaining sleep and it goes against that principle of stimulus control. So it's best to get up in that situation, leave the room, do something that you enjoy and if you feel sleepy again, then return to bed.
0: These are really helpful techniques and I am sure I'll be using some of these um, but I'm just wondering if some of our members might need some more in-depth help.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's important to say that the insomnia is a serious condition and it adversely affects our mental health, our ability to work and our quality of life. And it's been shown in several studies to affect these parameters in a manner akin to depression or heart failure. So if somebody was worried that they were developing or had an insomnia disorder, then I'd really encourage them to chat to their GP first of all. The first line of treatment that's recommended nationally and internationally for insomnia is Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia. And it's often shortened to CBTI. And there's a variety of self-help resources that are widely available. So these include some excellent books by sleep specialists such as Dr. Kirsty Anderson, Professor Colin Esby and Professor Jason Ellis, as well as internet-based therapy such as Sleep Station or Sleepio.
0: That's great. David, and as I say, I think some really useful tips and techniques for our members. Are there any final words you have for them?
1: Uh, Yeah, for sure. I mean, trying to follow some of these techniques will really help to improve sleep, and by doing so, and help improve our mood, quality of life, and functioning in this very challenging period. So as a recap, for those members experiencing insomnia-like sleep difficulties, I'd recommend Getting up at the same time seven days a week, no matter how badly they had slept. Trying to avoid napping in the day. Only using the bed and the bedroom for sleep, sex and getting dressed. Try to limit caffeine intake to 2pm. Try not to drink alcohol in the two hours before bed at least. And try to get some form of daily exercise. Think about developing a buffer zone. That period of 90 minutes or so before bed where you try to move your body and mind into a state of relaxation ready for sleep. As part of that buffer zone, think of starting it by having a bath and then thinking about trying the worry diary. And when you're in bed and you have difficulty falling off to sleep or getting back to sleep if you wake in the night, try the progressive muscular relaxation. Think also of the thought stopping techniques that we discussed. So opening your eyes and using the the technique. And these, again, are particularly useful when our mind is racing in bed at night. Try only to go to bed when you feel sleepy, tired. Try to be persistent and patient with these techniques as they can take some time to work. And importantly, remember that you're not alone, even though it might feel like it at times. Insomnia is really a very common condition and there is wider help available too.
0: Thanks so much, David. So this is a question I'm asking all our guests, um, and I wonder if you'd be happy to share your thoughts on what lessons do you think that we as a profession can learn from the COVID crisis?
1: Um, Well, I think firstly, I'd like to take uh, this opportunity to express my sincere condolences to all of those who've lost loved ones during this crisis. And I think it's also important to express my gratitude to colleagues who are working in various health services while simultaneously juggling their own worries and fears in relation to their patients, their own health, finances, and that of their families as well. I think a lot of the time, Pallavi, it feels like we're living in a new world where, for the first time in my life, certainly, millions of us are bonded by the same health worries. And in this time, we're perhaps discovering new aspects of our personalities and ourselves as we live and adapt to this very acute, unpredictable and ever-changing stress. And I think we're in the midst of the storm right now, so maybe it's a bit too early to reflect fully, but I hope from all this suffering that we emerge as a kinder and more generous to ourselves and towards each other. And I think many of us are already witnessing these positive changes, and I really hope they endure.
0: Absolutely, David, some really thought-provoking words there. So just finally like to thank you for taking time out uh, to talk to our members and to provide some really helpful tips and guidance.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure Pallavi.
0: And uh, what we will be doing uh, as I've said in some of the other podcasts if if people have been listening is we've opened up our counselling service to our members who will be finding um, themselves in very difficult situations either uh, on the front line or worried about their finances. So All that's left for me to do is to thank you for listening and hopefully you'll all get a good night's sleep.